Several of the earlier episodes of DS9 were basically TNG episodes or episodes that had previously been pitched to uh, to Paramount, to Star Trek in general, that never actually got made and then were made over on DS9. Now, there's plenty of reasons to do that. You know, you've already got the script, you've already paid for it, basically. You just need to have your existing people who are already on staff turn it into something manageable, right? You know, it's something that'll actually work for the show. Um, so it's a good way to save money, is what I'm trying to say. And remember, it's kind of important for early DS9. But it results in episodes like this. For, so from a financial episode, or from a financial perspective, doing that makes a lot of sense. But from a creative perspective, this is an episode so not memorable that I barely remembered it existed at all. Even when I started watching it, I'm like, uh, it wasn't until I saw the little key pendant thing where I went, I was like, oh, right, right, the, the fake out, the, the, that, yeah, yeah, totally an episode of, of some significance or importance, right? Consequently, I don't have a lot to say about the one. this one. It's very average. It is very average. It is effectively a TNG episode in DS9. Now, I don't mean that as necessarily a negative thing, but... This really does feel like your typical TNG episode. Um, we encounter a situation, something happens, uh, two new characters are introduced to us, one is portrayed as obviously, uh, you know, antagonistic, and the other is portrayed as antagonistic, but with, with additional depths going on. One of the characters, one of the main characters bonds with them, they learn more about it, we go, you know, there's this whole chase action sequence as the antagonistic one attacks them then it gets to the point where they learn the truth and then they decide to go ahead and help out the not actually antagonistic character i mean you can see how it follows those beats i bet you could think of several tng episodes that do exactly that nevertheless i do have a couple of nice things to say about this uh and in fact before we really start talking about the episode proper first i want to give praise to randy oglesby He's, he's another one of those actors that hasn't done a lot of things, but I tend to like him <clears throat> whenever he's on camera. Excuse me. <laughs> oh. uh, some of you may recognize him a little bit more as uh, Degra over in Enterprise. He's actually done several Star Trek roles. Uh, I'm sorry, one moment. Forgive me. I am still not 100% better, and uh, it's very cold and wet today, so my lungs are not liking me. Forgive me. So, <clears throat> so he's done some good stuff. Uh, he does a decent job of the main the main antagonist as much as he can with what is effectively a cartoon role. You remember how I talked about dialogue back when it came to uh, what was that episode? Uh, Move along home, and how repetitious it was. Right, right. He is, I mean, I've talked about bland, boring villains when it comes to writing before, but the guy, I, I wrote down his name, what's his name? Akel. Akel, the guy who's played by uh, Randy Oglesby. He's really, really repetitious. Almost every single one of his lines, not counting his first scene, where the first encounter, but every, almost every scene after that is, I have lost my other half. He is a part of me. I exist only to kill. I must kill him. I lost my other half. Like, almost everything he says up until the final encounter is repeating those points over and over and over and over and over. And then when you get to the final encounter, it's, you will surrender, 
or you will die. Fight, 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 fight. Uh, have you decided to surrender? No, then you will die. Fight, fight, fight. I mean, it's just... Wow, guys. I feel like this is a script that could have worked a lot better if it had more doctoring. Because that's kind of the problem with the script overall. It's just very, very by the numbers. I bet most of you, either if you're watching this for the first time, or if you're re-watching this with me, and I do hope a lot of you are re-watching this with me. It makes me smile to think about that, and to think that you're enjoying this with me. Or at least trying to enjoy this with me. But I bet a lot of you watching this could have, could have predicted, like, the whole episode's events pretty much from the word go. Like, okay, this guy walks in and he's attacking them. But okay, yep, so, yep, he's, he's, it's a trick. Quark's on in on this, and he's dead, so now he's got the vendetta, and this guy's got some dark secret past, and so he's going to come across as a liar and a thief, but he's really secretly a good guy, you know. I bet you could predict everything about this episode, just bam, right at the beginning. Very predictable. Um, but what's really, really weird is I have three things to talk about in this episode before we get to the episode itself, and thank God for that, because otherwise this would be one of my 15-minute ruminations. First of all, Let's talk about Odo a little bit. Uh, we haven't really discussed Odo's capabilities that much, because it hasn't really come up that much. They haven't done a lot of work really discussing the changeling part of Odo. They established that literally in his first scene in Emissary. Good, good move. Visual storytelling, just instantly we know what we're dealing with. But they haven't really done a lot to really flesh out how much he can do. And i got to say, the fact that he could turn into a glass about this big and still be capable of sensing what's around him, hearing, seeing, etc. That's actually really impressive. That is actually basically magic at that point. Now, keep in mind, Odo can still be, for example, knocked out, knocked unconscious. That happens in this episode. He can still be injured, for that matter, as well. And, of course, he can be killed. We will see uh, that in the future. So... <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are the extent of his capabilities? How does he function? Now, obviously, I'm the kind of writer who tends to think of fantasy and science fiction as being capable of melding together. Almost everything, everything I've ever written has been a setting in which fan, uh, you know, magic and science fiction have both coexisted, right? Uh, so, obviously, that's my mindset. But So, my mind jumps automatically to he basically is a mythical creature, what I would refer to as an inherently magical being. Uh, what that means, in my terms, would be that he has access to, in my case, fifth-dimensional energies, but, you know, in the case of whatever, he has access to a different type of energy that allows him to basically, not in a complete and utter way, but in very specific, precise ways, bypass the normal rules of physics. Like, for example, the ability to completely convert his mass into this. Just the, the, the basic elements of shape-shifting regarding mass distribution is a huge deal when you think about it. The fact that, again, to, to go back to what they say in this episode, or show in this episode, excuse me, is the fact that he could still perceive, well, he's a glass. He has no ears, he has no eyes, there's no biological part of him that is allowing him to perceive. But he still can. Now, that actually makes a degree of sense, since, after all, the form he takes is purely cosmetic. He does that for the sake of those around him. We, we've kind of already established that. This will be more established in the future. But the relevant point is that he already doesn't need eyes or ears to see or hear, because he doesn't actually have them. Not, not really. Not in the traditional sense. Um, so, how much could he expand, for example? Is there a limit to it? 
to how much he could go out or how much he could go in. I mean, I hate to keep reiterating this point, but humanoid mass down to the size of a glass is already pretty damn impressive with regards to change of volume and mass. So how far can he stretch it? Is there a finite amount? Like maybe he can condense the cells that make up his being to the point where, you know, they, they're, they're, they're practically solid, no pun intended. Um, but he can only do that so far. He can only shrink to a certain amount. And that, that would then be logical to say that he could only expand to a certain amount either. After a certain point, it gets to the point where he starts entering a gaseous state, and at that point he probably dies. So, you know, that just thoughts here, ideas. Um, now, if we were to exclude magic from this, I don't really have a good science fiction answer for how something like this can exist. The closest I've got is the idea of... Basically, think of it as one big brain. Uh, a brain... Uh, I'm saying this wrong. Think of it as if every... I'm going to use the word cell, but I don't know what it actually is. But, you know, every molecule, every component, whatever you want to call it, every cell that makes up Odo is... runs the general functions of basically all the, the necessary organs... All of them. All of them do this all of the time, uh, congruent with each other. So muscles, uh, you know, auditory, the ability to hear, the ability to see, the ability to think. All of that is basically all of his cells simultaneously. So he doesn't actually have any essential organs, any weak spots, if you will. He just has his entire being, right? And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, maybe he has that capacity to shrink the space between those cells, really condense them in, as he is altering them to to you know make uh, follow or pattern themselves after some kind of other molecular makeup you know something like that this is all just off the top of my head but it's interesting to think about and 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 ponder because to my knowledge they never really scientifically explain how the changelings work it is interesting to me that they do have gender identities uh, obviously well I shouldn't I shouldn't even say that we don't actually know if there is a biological difference between a male and a female maybe there is you know, maybe all of the gender organs of a male, again, are throughout their entire being on a, on a male uh, changeling or a female changeling, and thus they could actually have uh, sexual dimorphism of a form, or the ability to procreate in, in a typical uh, gender, gender diverse fraction. I forget what that's called, when a male-female species exists. There's a term for that, but, you know. Maybe that is a thing. I don't actually know. Maybe they just started identifying as male and female because that's what so much of the rest of the galaxy does. Remember, they spend a lot of time, uh, you know, amongst other races, interacting with other races. So maybe they kind of pattern. But see, at the same time, I can't buy that. Given how much they hold themselves superior to solids, I can't imagine them patterning their thought processes after solids unless we're getting into some serious irony territory. So actually... I'm going to disagree with myself and say that there probably is some kind of actual legitimate either uh, identity or genetic slash biological slash makeup thing about the changelings that lends them more towards male or female. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, another thing, uh, so that's, that's all i got to say about Odo. It's some cool stuff. Uh, next thing I want to talk about is Morn. Now, Morn's actually been in the series, uh, I think, since Emissary. He's been in for a while. And... He's just been kind of there in the background. In fact, he has opened his mouth already and, in fact, has laughed. Uh, that was uh, last episode, I want to say. 
It was within the episodes I'm covering for January, so it has to be the last episode of the episode before. It was very recent. And that's the last time we will ever hear a sound of any significance come out of Morn's mouth. Uh, because this is the episode in which they established the joke, the running gag. Uh, oh, God, Morn will, will shut his damn mouth. <laughs> I don't know why, but that has always made me laugh just a little bit. I enjoy a good running gag as long as it's well presented. So, what do you want from me? Now... The other thing I want to talk about is the very concept of the changelings. This is actually the first time that word is used. And I did a lot of digging into interviews, into uh, you know, the wiki, into the magazines, into the, the episodes, everything I had. All the behind-the-scenes stuff, you know, everything I had access to. But unfortunately, everything I found basically indicated the same thing. They designed Odo to be a, to be a shapeshifter, excuse me. And that he didn't know where his people were from. And that was it. They didn't actually design his people. Uh, this is what I refer to as backloading. Uh, back, ba uh, yeah, backloaded writing instead of front-loaded writing. In other words, rather than writing out all the history and details of his people and all that in advance, they just said, he doesn't know his people, oh, and he's a shapeshifter. We'll fill in the blanks later. If you remember, this is actually the same damn thing they've been doing with the Trill, and will continue to do with the Trill in the future. This is also kind of the same thing that they'll be doing in a lot of ways. It's funny in its own right. People talk about the, the you know, ah, oh, Babylon 5 and DS9, except both of them approached storytelling almost exactly opposite. Because Babylon 5 was all about front-loaded. Most of Babylon 5 was written before they, before they sat down and recorded the first episode. By contrast, DS9, almost none of DS9 was written before they did the first episode. They had only a few vague ideas. And in fact, at, even at this point, they still haven't even designed the Dukat is the Devil idea, which they will do uh, very, very soon, unfortunately. I'll talk about that more later. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, so it's just interesting to think about that this is basically our first real step forward for for changelings, for the very concept of changelings as a species, as a concept. And what's really kind of irritating is it's in this otherwise average episode. Remember how I mentioned TNG episode? Well, TNG does do setting continuity. Things do happen that affect things further down the line in kind of a vague sort of a way. And this will kind of sort of affect things in a really, really vague sort of a way. But, just like TNG, Voyager's actually a little better of an example on this one. Uh, by the end of the episode... You might as well hit the reset button. Odo doesn't really learn anything new about his people, except that there are, you know, except the word changeling and the idea that they exist on the other side of the wormhole, which we already kind of knew. That was actually established in Emissary. Uh, I know what you're saying. Well, it was only a vague implication in Emissary. Yeah, and it's still kind of a vague implication here. So, uh, make of that what you will. And... The, and that's it. That is all. We, we don't even learn anything new about Odo as a character. He doesn't move forward or change. There's only one thing character-wise that really salvages what would otherwise be a completely average, average episode. But I'll get to that when we get there. So, before we actually talk about the episode, I actually want to talk about... Well, I'll do it when I get there. Let's, let's talk about the episode. So, Odo as ever, is perceptive, you know, picks up on the fact, as he's here watching Quark, knowing that there's this uh, Mirrodin or Mirabin people showing up, and he's, he wants to deal with them, he still has time to pay attention to Croden over in the corner and be like, huh, yeah, okay. Keep an eye on that one. 
And what's also interesting that, is that Croden kept eyeballing him. Now, based on what we could reasonably state as truth in this episode, Crone has never met a changeling and has, had, has no idea what they are or how they are. The first time he was aware of Odo's changeling status is when Odo morphed in front of him, right? However, that would mean that Croden was paying attention to Odo not because he's a changeling, but because he's a security chief, which kind of shows the sort of experience and, uh, I guess, mentality that Croden has, which makes sense if he really is from the kind of world he says he is. I'll get to that later. Um, I also find it... So then we're going to fast forward a little bit. You know, Croden shows up to to stage the uh, the the robbery in order to try and steal this thing and blah blah blah. Quark, oh God, Quark is super worried about this, right? Like he, he, later, Odo starts putting the pieces together, like Odo does, and Quark is like, "You need you need to stop talking about that. If he finds out that I was behind this, do you know what he's going to do to me?" Now. I find it interesting that Odo isn't particularly concerned about being charged or accused or anything like that. What he's worried about is a crazed Miraban trying to kill him. This kind of goes back to what I was talking about in the Nagus, where Quark has basically is like a tier three, and he's dealing with people in tiers several tiers above him, you know, tier five or tier six. But that brings up a question. Why do this at all? Why bother to go that extra step in order to rob from people that you're actively afraid of? Although, I do have to point out it's amusing to me that Quark didn't actually know Oda was there, but still phrased his overall presentation as if Oda was there. I like to think personally that Quark, even when he's basically alone in a room, or just with people that he knows, likes to, likes to put on a show a little bit, just in case Oda's actually there. You never know, right? It's also probably a handy trick, even regardless of Odo, for a Ferengi to have, because you never know when someone has some equipment spying on you. In fact, uh, in many circles, it would be normal to be spied on during business transactions, so makes sense, right? Now, I want to point out another thing. Uh, they go to, to deliver this news to Corbin's people, and we know nothing about them, really. Like, I actually sat down and tried to figure out things we could say with strong certainty exist about these people. There is a fairly strong certainty that they don't really have trials or anything like that. They just, justice is done in the end, which is actually funny because I can think of a few other races who do a similar thing, but, you know, whatever. Uh, <clears throat> and then we could say with relative certainty that they have no interest in the wormhole or the people beyond it. Maybe. Got to add a maybe to that one. And there's a pretty decent chance they have a totalitarian government. Although, that is still in the maybe category. So much of we... We learn almost nothing about these people. And we'll never see them again, of course. Uh, at least not any significance. So, <laughs> what do we know about them? This is, again, a little more TNG or Voyager. And a lot less DS9. These people are not fleshed out. These people are not some, you know, some people. They're not even a race of hats, because they don't even have a hat. They're just there. And they demand Corbin back. He is already guilty. We will take him back, give him back. And that's basically it. It is reasonable to say that Corbin, uh, or Croden, excuse me. I don't know why I keep saying Cor Corden. Croden, 
is telling at least some of the truth about the totalitarian government, about being an enemy of the state. But why was he an enemy of the state? No, he implies that that's because he was asking questions. But as he himself points out and demonstrates several times in the episode, he implies several things with deliberate intent to deceive. That's what I refer to as deceiving rather than lying. We don't actually outright lie, but you are still intending to alter the other person's perceptions, right? So, even that's debatable about why this happened or what could this could happen. All we can say with total certainty is that he has a daughter that he cares about a lot and he's willing to go through basically anything to help and take care of. Up to and including dying, it's worth noting. Now I bring that part up. This is very important. Because the episode is obviously designed to make us feel for him. Oh, he's a, he's a jerk with a heart of gold. There's a good person in there. And I admit, I like that kind of storyline because I kind of like to have that idealistic perspective every now and again. But I like that to be earned rather than just stated. What the episode basically does is holds up a neon sign saying, this guy's a good guy, just trust him. And it does that in every aspect of his presentation. But if you think about it, if you really think about it, I want you to picture someone who is sufficiently desperate, that's the important word, sufficiently desperate to do whatever is necessary up to and including dying and nearly dying and killing and lying and probably stealing in order to get back to his daughter. Now, okay, I can relate to that. I have a child, I have a niece, I have family and I have friends who I'd probably be willing to do a lot of that stuff for too. Not the killing part, I'm not a fan of that, but you know. I haven't had to face that choice in real life, thank God. So let's just leave that at the wayside. So I can understand the mentality of being willing to go as far as possible. It's, it actually goes to back to an old quote of mine. Uh, the only thing that determines what you can do is how much it matters to you. So the idea I am postulating is that he is sufficiently motivated by his daughter and getting her out and getting her free that he is willing to go way beyond any of this. Now... He is being taken by Odo out there, and he is relatively smart, and he is relatively perceptive. Now, he could actually tell Odo the truth, whatever that truth may be. Or, he could tell a slanted version of that truth, in other words, to deceive, to try and portray himself in a more sympathetic light, not for his own sake, but so that Odo will be more inclined to take care of his daughter when he asks him to do so. Now, again... I don't think the episode actually has this level of subtlety to it. But, in my opinion, we cannot take as read virtually anything he says, because his motives are very plain and apparent, even in the episode. He cares about her, the end. So, who knows? One thing I find very interesting, though, if you'll forgive me for segueing for just a second, according to Bashir, that little shapeshifter locket, has the same general structure that Odo does. Now, that's very curious to me. Because that either means Bashir is an incredibly incompetent doctor. I mean, you know, he, he did have problem to identifying a pre, uh, pre-ganglionic fiber versus a post-ganglionic nerve, or which I wrote as, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, so he did have problems with that, so maybe he is truly that incompetent. Or, the actual changelings are... Well, I'd say are allowing bits of themselves to be sold off as jewelry, but 
let's just say that that would be a great way to spy on people, wouldn't it? Think about it. Anyways, <clears throat> of course, given that this locket is like never seen again, it's probable that that's not actually the case. So I have no idea what's going on. I think we'll just have to assume Bashir's an idiot. Sorry, Bashir. Sorry. You're a moron. There are problems with backloaded writing. It is worth noting. Um, oh yeah, one quick thing. You notice how this episode follows the TNG format of diplomacy? You notice that, right? Now, let me explain what I mean by that. I've been talking about this over on Mondays, about how TNG, especially early TNG, had this mentality of whatever they say goes. Like, we don't get a say in this. You know, the whole one-sided diplomacy thing. Because that's exactly how it applies here with this planet of people we know nothing about. No, th th this is effectively first contact. Funny how uh, this is just as uninteresting of a first contact as we had back in Move Along Home, although less aggravating. But, you know, so this is effectively a first contact situation, and we do have a fugitive who has killed someone, and according to our legal system, blah, blah, blah. Uh, now, it is worth noting that the Bajorans were the ones who were holding him, and therefore the Bajorans are the ones who released him. They do say that in the episode, but the mentality is still there. Whatever they demand goes, whatever they say goes, whatever they insist on goes. We don't get a say, because, you know, we're enlightened, right? That's how diplomacy works, right? No, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go and lay this down here as hard as I can. Uh, proper diplomacy does involve both give and take, and being able to properly show oneself as strong, not just in a military fashion, in fact, usually not in a military fashion, but in the capacity to negotiate, to have cooperation, to have coexistence. If I do whatever you say, that's not coexisting. That's actually parasitic at that point, if we want to get down to terms. <sighs> Anyways, I've ranted about that enough on TNG. I just want to point that out, because it's another thing that makes us feel like a TNG episode. So, uh, speaking of which, speaking of lack of logic, so, uh, what's his name? Akel barges into Quark's bar, and threatens Quark with death, let's just start with that, and physically hurts him. Where's security? I mean, <laughs> it's, I know, I know, Bajoran Station and all, which the Federation is running, and there's some debates about, you know, uh, domain of, of who can actually run what legislate or not legislate. what's the word, um, uh, jurisdiction. There's some debates about jurisdiction, but there are no Bajoran security guards and no Starfleet security guards to try and prevent someone from threatening someone with death and physically assaulting them. If you tried that kind of crap in real life, there's a pretty good chance you would get several months in jail as a start. But no, 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 no. He just, he just gets away with it scot-free. What I find funnier about this is that Quark doesn't try to bring up charges on this or go to someone about this. Now, you might be like, ah, Quark just doesn't want his dealings represented. Except that that cat's already out of the bag, remember? He was caught pretty much red-handed trying to deal with this guy. Covered his arse because, you know, he didn't. He said, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's stolen or whatever. So, that, okay, we're okay on that. But... He's already admitted that he's had dealings with this guy. That's done. 
he could then freely go and say, oh my God, he's coming after me. He thinks I'm responsible for his brother's death. Anything? While I'm on the subject, didn't they order increased security like twice? Didn't they order to watch this guy and for him to not leave his ship? Did Was that one of those, like, gentlemen's agreements kind of a things? Was that just going on the honor system? Don't you leave your ship. We're not going to leave anyone to watch you or follow you. We're not even going to keep you on the scanners, for God's sakes. But by God, you better not leave your ship. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Anyways. Now, I mentioned two parts of this episode that are good. Don't worry. I'm about to talk about them right now. First... There's a scene where Odo is questioning Quark. This is actually earlier in the episode, where Odo is basically grilling Quark, and Quark's like, no, God, stop, stop, you're going to get me killed. And Odo's like, you better tell me about this. But what I love about it is the performance of both actors is surprisingly subtle and wonderfully characterized. That little snippet, that one scene, that was DS9 right there. Because... I mean, not that TNG doesn't do character moments, so I guess I shouldn't say that, but my point is that is a scene that felt very Deep Space Nine. Because Odo was, in his own way, coming across as far more aggressive and far more interested in this than usual. Like, more than just merely grilling Quark for a criminal deal gone bad. And Quark notices. Quark notices it. Quark catches onto it. His tone changes. Like, in mid-questioning, he's like, no, 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 no. I'm doing it too obviously because I'm not a good actor, but, you know, you know, huh? Like, there's a bit of, what's going on here? And then Quark's expression changes as he realizes what's happening. Because what's happening is Odo is very interested in this guy because he might know something about where he's from. You know, Odo's past, part of his character arc. This comes up again as Rom is talking to Quark. Uh, you know, Mr. Al Akel is like, oh, I'll kill you, and then I'll walk away scot-free because we don't have security. And then uh, Rom is like, hey, oh my god, he, he's gonna, this might be good, he could kill Odo for us, and that would be wonderful. And then Quark starts talking about it, and, and then Quark actually says this bit where he's like, Odo's never gonna let, let his prisoner go. He would never do that. And then Rom, who still isn't really being Rom yet, again, see the Nagus, is like, do you really think so? Like like this, oh, goody, he might kill Odo, kind of a tone. And Quark snaps at him. Quark is like, get out of here. Like, this, there's just anger in that tone as he says that. It's nice, it's subtle, but it shows in its own quiet way that Quark doesn't actually want Odo to die. And I like that. For all of the antagonizement, Quark's just not that bad of a guy. He's not that particular flavor of evil or criminal or whatever you want to call that. And I kind of like that. It's part of what makes him, you know, an interesting character. But I digress. So, I only got a couple more things to talk about. So they're out on the Ganges, and suddenly the whole ship rocks. And so what follows is about 15 to 20 seconds of... Computer, why did we rock? Oh, it was caused by a, a, a technobabble. Uh, okay, what is that caused by? Uh, usually a ship fighting us. Wait, there's a ship? Yes, there's a ship over here. I know, I know. They even explain it in the episode, but it kind of stretched my disbelief really far that the first notification they had that there was a ship nearby or that a ship was powering up weapons or that a ship was firing on them was their ship shaking. Now, the way they explain this is that Odo has no idea how to actually fly a runabout, so he's just kind of letting the computer run it. 
you know, autopiloting his way through. You notice several times they give orders to the computer rather than just doing it themselves. Uh, this happens throughout the whole runabout sequence, actually. So that kind of makes sense, but it brings up an interesting question. Why is Odo the one turning this prisoner over? Why is Odo alone on this mission? Wouldn't it be better to send someone, oh, I don't know, say a, a trained and skilled pilot with him in case they run into trouble, which I remind you, they were anticipating. Although it's worth noting, they don't even give more than a token resistance to Akel leavings, and, and I don't even know what to say about that, considering they were apparently totally okay with literally killing him and his ship, which is what ends up happening, so... <laughs> what? Now, we know why that happened. It happened because plot. Because Odo needed to be alone with Crodon in order to, you know, ah, I was all alive, but it's okay because I have a daughter. That whole thing, right? Um, but it doesn't really make sense when you think about it. Especially since the episode goes out of its way to call attention to the fact that Odo doesn't know what he's doing behind the helm of a ship. Even a runabout. And, uh, yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. Uh, two more things. Two more things. So, first of all, I find it interesting in its own way that the Vulcans are on the other side. Now, this is actually, I think, the third time total we've had reference to the Vulcans being in the Gamma Quadrant. Uh, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I don't mean like, how do I put this? Basically, I imagine the Vulcans as a people, even independent of the Federation, just basically saying, all right, we're going, we're scanning, because it's a Vulcan mindset. This is something new, interesting, and engaging, and, to be as blunt as possible, it is logical to get in on that as quickly as possible. Why? Well, we've never encountered a stable wormhole before. Ever. I remind you of that. So, who's to say this one is going to stay that way? Or, who's to say that the prophets are going to continue to allow us passage through it? Or, who's to say that the other exit is always going to be at the same spot, right? It is always well within possibility that something can and will go wrong with this. Get the data, get the study, get the information while we can. That is very logical. That always kind of made sense to me. And then, after they leave here, they're going back to Vulcan. Which, again, makes sense, although it kind of implies that what I mentioned earlier in passing is true. That the Vulcans are doing this ahead of the Federation. Keep in mind, we're up to, what? 11, 12 episodes into DS9 now, and the Federation as an entity has done nothing on the other side of the wormhole. Our first first contact mission, which happened on this side, which was a disaster, but I talked about that, has barely just happened. The Federation as an entity, as a political organization, hasn't been doing jack. Now, that makes sense. The Federation is a, a representative democracy, right? Uh, so, one of the things that is true of that type of government, there's no politics here, there's no me <laughs> saying it's good or bad or whatever, it is a valid truth that one of the aspects of that type of government is it takes longer to do stuff. Got to get more buy-in from more people, got to follow more regulations, got to do more things. And it's even a running gag on this show about how many regulations the Federation has for doing stuff, right? In other words, I have a suspicion, and I don't think this is ever confirmed in the show, that the Federation has, has actually not done anything. Because they're still trying to get prepped and work through this, and God, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this, and 
Keep in mind, in lore, it's only been like three or four months since this wormhole was opened. It has not been a long period of time. So it makes perfect sense to me that the Vulcans, as a Federation member, independent of the overall organization, would say, Let's go! Let's go! I know I would. Final thoughts. So, one of the things that I've been doing and failing at, and I want to apologize for this, is I've kind of been spoiling aspects of DS9 uh, in, in some of these previous ruminations. And I'm going to try and stop doing that. Uh, because I have heard from a lot of people, way more than I thought, who have not actually gone through Deep Space Nine before. Uh, I figured with such a well-known show and its being as old as it is, that, that many people would be, uh, you know, would, would, would be well aware of the show. But the amount of people who have told me that they're watching this show for the first time alongside me, or you know, ahead of me or whatever, I've decided I'm going to try to be a lot more uh, limited on, uh, on spoilers. So what I'm going to do is anytime I have a note or something in my notes that I'm going to talk about after, you know, that is spoiling future DS9 episodes, and I mean in a concrete way, not in a we'll see this come together way or this is a future arc kind of way, but in something where I'm actually saying, you know, it was his sled or whatever, I'm going to put that at the end of the rumination. That way people can nice and skip it. And I'll make a nice big obvious. I'm not going to do the visual effect. Nobody liked that. Um, you know, be, I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to be like, okay, we're now in the spoiler zone. And then I'll talk about it there. So, <clears throat> now we're in the spoiler zone. That's your cue to hit pause if you don't want spoilers, okay? I want to give an example of what I'm talking about first. Because I've already kind of casually done this. And I actually feel kind of bad about this. I've already spoiled... This is really your last chance, guys. I've already spoiled the fact that Julian Bashir is revealed to be genetically engineered. Although, I've, I recall I've been kind of vague in my terminology of that and been getting vaguer as time goes on, but I'm pretty sure I've at least given that away, and I do apologize for that uh, spoiler, hardly having been given away. Um, but that is the kind of thing, you know, thoughts about Julian Bashir as he is, and as he will be, being the kind of thing that I'll bring up later. It's another aspect of backloaded uh, lore, by the way. None of Julian Bashir's backstory was written when the character was designed. Um, but what I want to actually talk about that's spoilery in this episode is the Dominion. Seriously, think about this for a moment. We have a planet which used to have uh, persecution of, you know, looking down upon changelings. I've heard stories and all that, right? But I, I, I think this is some of the stuff we can say with at least some certainty is true. You know, all the tales of changelings who centuries ago were there and were persecuted and, and reviled and all that. And uh, the idea that this place is now under some kind of absolute totalitarian uh, you know, oligarchy where there's no cry there's no trials one of the punishments for being an enemy of the state even if you are just speaking out on it even if you put out a pamphlet or whatever is the murder of your family that is extremely dark but it actually fits perfectly if what he has been telling us is true because I could completely see the founders doing that to a planet that they would remember. They've prob there are probably founders alive who were on that planet, assuming, assuming everything he said was true. There were probably founders that were alive on that planet for that persecution. They remember that crap. They don't let that stuff go. So I could completely see the founders remembering that and either, you know, one way or another, making this world part of the Dominion, and then basically forcing their government into this horrible system 
because screw you. And then just leaving it in place until it becomes normal. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds very much like the founders to me. Um, this is probably a good time to... I, I don't think I've actually used the word founder thus far. I've been trying to avoid it. But I, I just want to say really quick, I know we're not there yet, but... The founders are, in my opinion, some of the most evil, recurring antagonists we've ever had in the entirety of Star Trek. They are like a whole new messed up level of evil that Star Trek usually doesn't go into. This is the kind of person who will talk down to you as you are starving to death, as they pat their fat belly, I don't have that fat of a belly, but you know, just pretend it's like out here, pat, 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 saying... Don't worry, it's for your own good, and mean it with total sincerity. Messed up. Anyways, hope you've enjoyed, and I will be seeing you guys next time.